Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. With Capella University's FlexPath format, you can set your own deadlines, learn at your pace, and access most coursework from anywhere at any time. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Due to the graphic nature of this podcast, listener discretion is advised. This episode features discussions of assault and murder. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. Shortly after 3 p.m. on January 29th, 2015, the 911 calls began to pour in. Several men had gotten into an argument in the parking lot of Tam's Burgers. The fight escalated until the man who was seated in a bright red SUV revved the engine and then struck his victim. But the confrontation didn't end there. After hitting the man, the driver backed up, then drove forward again intentionally running over the injured man and another bystander. Only then, satisfied that the other parties were dead or dying, did the driver speed away. When first responders arrived on the scene, they found two men lying on the ground. One of those men, security officer Clee Bone Sloan, was seriously injured. The other, film producer and music executive Terry Carter, died before he could be transported to the hospital. As reports continued to roll in and a homicide investigation began, police soon learned the identity of the driver. The perpetrator wasn't just any killer. It was record mogul and notorious gangster, Suge Knight. Welcome to The Dark Side Of, a ParCast original. A show where we will delve into the seedy underbelly of pop culture icons and historical events. We aim to expose the ugly truth behind the cultural moments and public figures we hold most dear, proving that there is always more to the story than meets the eye. I'm your host, Richard. And I'm Kate. This is our seventh episode exploring the dark side of the music industry. The business has, especially in the last century, been synonymous with some of the most sordid aspects of our society. From rampant drug use to the exploitative creation of pop stars, to brutal violence and murder, the industry can be a volatile and dangerous environment. You can find all episodes of The Dark Side Of and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream The Dark Side Of for free on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type The Dark Side Of in the search bar. This week, we're telling the story of Suge Knight, 
a music producer who co-founded rap label Death Row Records in 1991. Knight represented superstars like Dr. Dre, Snoop Dogg, and Tupac Shakur. But he ran his business using intimidation and brutal violence to menace his competitors and his clients alike. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. Suge Knight is infamous for his brutally violent management style. He grew up on the streets of Compton, a member of a dangerous gang known as the Bloods. He carried that hyper-violent mindset with him into adulthood, running his record label Death Row Records like a deadly gangster. Among other things, Knight has been credited with personally igniting the East Coast-West Coast rap rivalry that culminated in the murders of Tupac Shakur and the notorious B.I.G. Although Knight has never been formally tied to either murder, he has been convicted of three separate assaults. In 1992, he beat two men in his own offices when they used company phones without his permission. Then, in 1996, Knight and Tupac brutalized a man they suspected of belonging to a rival gang. Later that night, Tupac was murdered. Then, in 2015, after a confrontation on the set of the feature film Straight Outta Compton, Knight intentionally ran over two men, killing one. As of 2019, Knight is serving a 28-year manslaughter sentence. Suge Knight's criminal inclinations stem from his childhood. And when you examine his life from the beginning, patterns begin to emerge of the factors that shaped the man he grew up to be. Suge Knight was born Marion Hugh Knight in Compton on April 19, 1965. His father, Marion Knight Sr., was a janitor, while his mother, Maxine, worked in a factory. According to Knight's friends, he earned the nickname Sugar Bear as a child because of his sweet and unassuming demeanor. Although he was aggressive and intimidating to his rivals, he never hesitated to protect those who were close to him. As he matured, Sugar Bear morphed into Suge, earning him the now familiar name Suge Knight. Sweet or not, Knight lived in an environment where threats, assaults, and even murder were an ordinary part of life. Compton of the 60s, 70s, and 80s was ground zero for the war between rival gangs, the Crips, and the Bloods. Each group feuded for territory where they could sell drugs, and their competition frequently erupted into violence. From a very young age, Knight learned that if he wanted to be safe, he needed to seem so tough that nobody wanted to risk messing with him. In his world, there were only two kinds of people, predators or prey. If he didn't want to find himself the victim of a robbery, beating, or murder, he had to be willing to rob, beat, and kill. Ironically, local gangs were both a threat and a protection. Knight knew that if he joined the Bloods, he'd make an enemy of every crip in Los Angeles. 
But the alternative was to have no gang affiliation whatsoever, which meant no one would have his back if he ever found himself in a dispute with someone bigger or stronger. Knight decided the benefits of membership outweighed the risk. He became a lifelong blood when he was a teenager. By the time he reached high school, Suge Knight was well known among his peers as a small-time criminal. His hulking frame helped him intimidate classmates who he'd hit up for money. It also made him an accomplished lineman on the Linwood High School football team. A four-year, two-sport letter winner, Knight was recruited to join the University of Nevada's Division I football team, playing varsity in 1985 and 1986. He flourished in the world of college sports, where he won the school's Rookie of the Year title and earned a spot on the conference's first team. His senior season, he finished strong enough that the 22-year-old was a serious contender for the NFL draft in 1987. He was originally passed over, but when players went on strike later that year, Knight was brought in as a scab to play for the Los Angeles Rams. During his brief professional football career, Knight played in two uneventful games. He didn't stand out on the field, but behind the scenes, he was a frequent target for bullying thanks to his status as a scab. Once again, he learned the hard lesson that it was safer to be part of the group than to be alone. And the NFL wasn't really Knight's crew anyway. His loyalty remained with the Bloods of Compton. In October 1987, the NFL strike ended and Knight retired from football after less than a month with the league. He soon found that his bulky frame and intimidating demeanor left him well-situated for other career paths. And in 1990, he accepted a job as a bodyguard to singer Bobby Brown. As a bodyguard, Suge Knight needed to be tough once more, ready to step into a tense situation and start punching if necessary. He met powerful producers and artists and got a first-hand view of how the music industry really worked. He learned that money was power, and of course, power was everything. Since the late 1970s, rap and hip-hop had been underground genres. A few albums were surprise successes, suggesting the public was ready for rap to hit the mainstream. New York had produced some rising rap stars, but the West Coast didn't have any major powerhouses yet. So Knight set his sights on becoming a hip-hop music manager. He connected with fellow producer and rapper Dr. Dre, and the pair founded Death Row Records in 1991, when Knight was 26. One of the first artists Knight managed to sign was composer Mario Chocolate Johnson, a minor ghostwriter with no hits to his name yet. And it was only a matter of time before Knight found that the same brash violence that put him at the top of the food chain in Compton also helped him cement himself as a force in the music industry. In 1990, Johnson reportedly wrote a song called Ice Ice Baby to be performed by Vanilla Ice. Before they had even formalized their professional relationship, Johnson mentioned to Knight that the rapper hadn't given him proper credit and was withholding the royalties that were rightfully his. Johnson was already suing Vanilla Ice, 
But Knight thought he could resolve the matter a lot more directly. He immediately launched into a harassment campaign against Vanilla Ice. He stalked the rapper, showing up at restaurants and other public spaces where he knew he would be. In late 1990, 25-year-old Suge Knight visited Vanilla Ice in his 15th floor suite at the Bellage Hotel, ostensibly to negotiate a resolution to his dispute with Johnson. Vanilla Ice thought that he was safe on home turf. Suge Knight wouldn't threaten him in his very own hotel room. But soon after Knight and his posse arrived, the music mogul suggested that he and Vanilla Ice chat out on the balcony. Accounts vary about what happened next. In one version of events, Knight drew his gun and ordered Vanilla Ice's bodyguards off the balcony. They heeded the threat, leaving the two men utterly alone. Knight began to muse on how unfortunate it would be if Vanilla Ice were to slip and fall over the balcony railing. In another version of events, Knight didn't have to threaten his enemies so directly. He just made a pointed look over the railing, and Vanilla Ice knew exactly what he was getting at. In the most outlandish account, Suge Knight grabbed Vanilla Ice and held him over the railing, letting the rapper dangle over a 15-story fall. The slightest slip would leave him plummeting to his death. Whether or not Vanilla Ice was dangled over the banister, he took the message to heart. In 1990, he resolved his dispute with Chocolate Johnson, signing over the rights to Ice Ice Baby. Later, Vanilla Ice discussed the incident with the press. Describing Suge Knight's tactics, he said, I needed to wear a diaper that day. I was very scared. Vanilla Ice wasn't the only artist intimidated by Suge Knight's antics. As rumors of his violence circulated, Knight earned exactly the reputation he'd fought so hard for. But rather than making himself untouchable, Knight only ensured that even bigger and badder rivals would come after him. Up next, Suge Knight sparks the infamous East Coast-West Coast rivalry. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Now, back to the story. In 1990, after founding Death Row Records, 25-year-old music mogul Suge Knight threatened and possibly assaulted rapper Vanilla Ice in a contract dispute. The attack followed a lifetime of aggressive posturing and asserting dominance, a pattern that would only get worse over the course of Knight's career. According to rumors, Suge Knight's behavior toward Vanilla Ice was the rule, not the exception. 
He was never slow to threaten other parties in negotiations. He flashed guns at label executives and always went out accompanied by two hulking bodyguards. And Knight's tactics only helped his career. His rivals feared him, his clients deferred to him, and his customers loved the authenticity of a real-life gangster criminal producing gangster rap music. As rap music exploded into the mainstream in the early 90s, Knight rode the wave of popularity to new heights of fame and power. And he didn't save his threats for rivals. Even the musicians he personally represented weren't safe from beatings, threats, and intimidation tactics. In July 1992, 27-year-old Suge Knight met with his client Linwood Stanley and Linwood's brother George. Knight regularly showed up late to these sorts of meetings intentionally. It was his way of asserting dominance. So as the minutes ticked by, Knight left the Stanley brothers alone in his lobby. When he finally emerged from the recording studio, Knight spotted Linwood placing a call from the company phone. Knight ordered the men not to use his phones. The musician argued that it was just a quick and urgent call. His brother George tried to intervene, but Knight's ire was already aroused. Because of Knight's obsession with power, he knew that any hint of weakness could be deadly. If he let these musicians disregard his request, his reputation would suffer. He may as well wear a target on his back. Unwilling to tolerate what he saw as severe disrespect, Knight flew into a rage, beating the men. Linwood and George ran down the hallways trying to escape. Knight chased them, punching, kicking, and smacking them along the way. Finally, he cornered them. With nowhere to run, the brothers tried to apologize, but it was too late for that. Enraged, Suge Knight ordered his musicians to kneel on the ground. The men complied. Then, he drew a gun from his holster. The musicians trembled in fear, wondering if Suge Knight was going to shoot them then and there. They could feel their hearts racing as he approached. Rather than fire on the delinquent rappers, Suge Knight struck Linwood in the face with the handle of his gun. The force of the pistol whip caused the weapon to misfire, discharging a bullet harmlessly into the wall. Knight concluded the beating with a bit of psychological dominance. He ordered the Linwood brothers to strip naked and lie on the ground until he granted them permission to leave. The men complied. Linwood bled from his head as he shivered on the cold floor. Finally, after what felt like an eternity, Knight allowed the brothers to leave. As the men dressed, Knight warned them that if they went to the police, he'd have them and their families killed. Unfortunately for Suge Knight, the brothers soon found their courage again. Hours after the incident, police stormed the Death Row Records studio. Suge Knight denied he'd done anything wrong, but a rudimentary investigation returned a bullet hole in the wall and a pool of Stanley's blood. Knight was led out of the studio in handcuffs. Thanks to efforts from his lawyer, Knight didn't go to trial for three years. Meanwhile, he continued to grow his music empire. When he finally reached the courthouse, 
he pled guilty and received a suspended sentence. In practical terms, that meant he wouldn't serve any prison time, but the conviction would remain on his record and his ability to travel would be somewhat restricted. Suspended sentences are not unlike parole, but they're issued in place of prison time. Although the sentence was light, Knight once again reaped the benefits of establishing himself as an authentic criminal from the streets. The media reported on the dangers of rap culture and how children needed to be shielded from the violent content made by brutal men. These reports just made rap fans want the albums all the more, and Knight reaped the profits. On August 25, 1993, his frequent collaborator Snoop Dogg shot and killed a man in a Los Angeles park. He was arrested and charged with murder, only increasing Death Row Records' profile and bolstering Knight's business. Ultimately, Snoop convinced the jury that he'd fired in self-defense, and he was acquitted. The pattern would soon be typical for Knight. He and his artists could break the law with impunity. And as his power as a hitmaker grew, so too did the body count. More trouble arrived in New York-based rapper Tupac Shakur. His numerous hits already made him a star in the rap industry, and according to rumors, he was outgrowing his relationship with East Coast rapper Notorious B.I.G. Notorious B.I.G., otherwise known as Biggie Smalls, was a friend and frequent collaborator with Suge Knight. But friendship could only go so far in the cutthroat rap industry. Suge Knight liked Biggie, but he didn't trust him. And he'd never let their relationship get in the way of a business decision. So Knight made Tupac a generous offer to record a track with Death Row. Tupac accepted, and Knight released an album that competed directly against Tupac's managers. Weeks later, Tupac was scheduled for a recording session with Biggie in November of 1994. Quad Recording Studios had offices just off of Times Square. Tupac arrived alone and right on time. While Tupac waited for the elevator, two men carrying 9mm handguns entered the lobby. Wordlessly, they opened fire. Tupac was struck five times. After he crumpled to the ground, the gunmen robbed him, taking tens of thousands of dollars worth of jewelry before they fled. The bleeding but still conscious Tupac was alone in the lobby. He didn't know how long it would take for the next visitor to arrive and call 911. He needed help, and fast. When the elevator arrived, Tupac climbed inside and hit the button to the eighth floor, where the quad recording studio's suite was. Seconds later, Tupac stumbled out of the elevator to find Biggie Smalls, Biggie's manager Puff Daddy, and another rapper waiting for him. When they saw the state he was in, they seemed utterly unsurprised, and they calmly called 911. Tupac survived the shooting and stayed in the hospital less than 24 hours. Although his injuries were far from healed, he insisted that he was too exposed and didn't feel safe from the shooters unless he was in his own home with his own security. Although police could find no leads in their investigation, the rapper thought he knew exactly who the shooters were. He confided in Suge Knight 
that he blamed Biggie Smalls and Puff Daddy, today known as Diddy or Sean Combs. Suge Knight could only respond in one way. If the New York managers came at his client, they were essentially coming at him. Letting it go would be a sign of weakness. Knight needed to assert his dominance. When the Source Awards were broadcast live from New York City in August 1995, Suge Knight took the stage and publicly insulted Puff Daddy. He said, Any artists out there that want to be an artist and stay a star and don't have to worry about the executive producer trying to be in all the videos, all on the record, dancing, come to death row. This line was a comment on Puff Daddy's tendency to record guest tracks on his clients' albums. In one fell swoop, Suge Knight insulted Puff Daddy's management, embarrassed him on live TV, and tried to scalp his talent. From that point forward, the rivalry was on. East Coast labels rallied around Puff Daddy and Biggie Smalls, while Suge Knight roused support among his own colleagues in the L.A. area. Tupac finally formally signed with Death Row Records in October 1995. It was hard at the time to say how much of the feud was real and how much was just branding. The media loved to report on the tensions between Biggie and Puff Daddy versus Tupac and Suge Knight. Tupac dropped several tracks in which he mocked Notorious B.I.G. For a while, it seemed like that was the end of it. But in late 1995, one of Knight's associates was shot to death in Atlanta. Knight publicly suggested that Puff Daddy had ordered the hit. The rivalry had turned deadly. But it couldn't get in the way of business. Nor was Knight going to allow it to stop him from enjoying the perks of his fame and fortune. Witnessing killers leaving their bodies in the abandoned buildings carries the children because they're healing, addicted to killing and neophilia. On September 7th, 1996, Knight and Tupac took a road trip to Las Vegas together to watch a Mike Tyson boxing match. Things had been tense between the pair for a while. According to rumors, Tupac planned to leave Death Row Records to found his own label. He was one of the biggest names in hip-hop and thought he could leverage his fame to build an empire. As for Knight, he resented that Tupac would leave him. Even worse, he didn't want to be in direct competition with the accomplished rapper. So he hoped to convince Tupac to change his mind, or at least to ensure that there would be no bad blood between them. On the evening of September 7th, Knight and Tupac went to the MGM Grand Casino and Hotel on the Strip. While they were there, they played a few hands of blackjack before they watched Tyson's brief match. After the fight, Knight and Tupac were on their way out when they spotted Orlando Baby Lane Anderson, a known member of the Crips. Since Knight was a lifelong blood, he immediately tensed. Tupac had a score to settle with Orlando, too. The date's unclear, but at some point earlier, Orlando and several other Crips had robbed Tupac, intimidating him into handing over a medallion that had personal value to the rapper. Even though the other man hadn't done anything aggressive that night at the MGM, he was still Tupac and Knight's enemy for life. Knight and Tupac jumped the man. With just one punch, 
Tupac laid his rival out on the ground, but he didn't stop. He punched and kicked, seemingly unwilling to stop until the Crip was dead. Luckily for the rival gang member, Suge Knight intervened, pulling Tupac out of the fray and escorting him from the MGM. They left a beaten but very much alive Anderson behind. Knight was no stranger to bloodshed, but he knew that beatdowns had to be executed with precision. He had nothing to gain if his star rapper went to prison for such a senseless crime. And then there was the matter of Knight's prior assault charges. He was still on parole and didn't want Tupac's temper to land him in prison. Although Knight knew that casinos were filled with security cameras, he was confident that so long as they escaped the MGM, there'd be no further consequences for the beatdown. The police would have no reason to review the footage with no report, and as much as Knight hated the Crips, he knew they weren't snitches. At 11.15 that night, Knight and Tupac were cruising down the strip, their concerns about the earlier fight behind them. Suge Knight slowed to a stop at a red light near the intersection with Koval Lane. While the men waited for the signal to change, neither made particular note of the white Cadillac that pulled up beside them. The Cadillac rolled down its back window and Knight spotted a gun poking out the driver's side back seat. In moments, between 10 and 15 bullets ripped through the BMW. Tupac was in the passenger seat closer to the shooters. He scrambled for the relative safety of the back seat. But he wasn't quick enough. Tupac was hit four times in the chest and torso. As for Suge Knight, he suffered only superficial wounds, including a graze to his head. He gasped for breath, processing what he'd just witnessed as the Cadillac peeled out and disappeared down Koval Lane. Up next, Knight loses a friend and his brutal reign of terror continues. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Rakuten. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% cash back at hundreds of stores including headliners, Ulta, Ray-Ban, and Canon. Rakuten is how in-the-know shoppers get the best savings. They shop the brands they love and earn cash back on top of deals during Big Give Week, May 6th to May 13th. The cash back rates are even bigger. I'll be shopping for Adidas and Fenty. You can save on everything you need for summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of Big Give Week's 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Now, back to the story. 
On September 7, 1996, 31-year-old Suge Knight visited Las Vegas with 25-year-old rapper Tupac Shakur. That night, unidentified assailants fired into Knight's car, striking both men. In the seconds after the shooting, Tupac lay splayed halfway between the front passenger seat and the back seat. He was bleeding, struggling for breath, but still alive and conscious. Suge Knight, rather than calling for an ambulance, made an illegal U-turn and tore the wrong way down the strip. Two police officers pursued them. In minutes, they pulled Knight over and found the bloody scene inside the car. Suge Knight's and Tupac's blood mingled on the BMW seats while the rapper grew less coherent with each second. Tupac was whisked away in an ambulance and then rushed into an emergency operation. Doctors repaired his most immediate injuries, but they couldn't mitigate the damage the bullets had wrought. Little more than a week after the shooting, Tupac Shakur died in the hospital at 4.04 p.m. on September 13, 1996. When police questioned Knight about Tupac's death, he refused to cooperate. After a lifetime opposed to snitching, he wasn't going to turn around and help an investigation, even when he was the sole witness, even when it involved his friend and colleague's murder. Today, Tupac's homicide remains unsolved. Theories range suggesting that notorious B.I.G. killed Tupac due to the East Coast-West Coast rivalry, or that the victim of his MGM beatdown, Orlando Anderson, sought deadly vengeance. One popular theory is that Suge Knight himself ordered the hit on Tupac after learning about his plans to open his own label. He couldn't stand to lose a client, nor would he tolerate a rival manager opening yet another West Coast label. So he eliminated the competition. Whether or not Suge Knight directly ordered the hit, it's clear that his actions led to Tupac's death, if only indirectly. Whether he ignited the rivalry that turned deadly or stood by as Tupac made a lethal enemy in Orlando Anderson, Knight set in motion the series of events that led to the murder. When police investigated Tupac's murder, they found the security footage that showed Tupac and Knight beating Orlando Anderson. Further digging revealed that Knight was on parole at the time of the fight. These two violations were enough to net him a nine-year prison sentence. Six months after Tupac's death, Notorious B.I.G. was murdered on March 9, 1997. Many speculated that Knight ordered the hit in retribution for Tupac's death. However, no charges were ever brought against Knight. Today, Notorious B.I.G.'s homicide remains unsolved. Knight only ended up serving four years of his sentence. Unfortunately, in the meantime, death row records shed talent without his guidance. Snoop Dogg and Dr. Dre went to rival labels, and when Knight was released on August 6, 2001, he found that the hip-hop industry had changed. By the early 2000s, rap was mainstream. The coasts had lost their hold on the hip-hop scene, and Atlanta and New Orleans were rising as new hubs. Violent criminality was no longer a selling point. 
it was a liability. Suge Knight knew that if he wanted to preserve his legacy, he'd have to change his image. He kept his head down, tried to avoid stirring up trouble. But while his public image was that of a peaceful, law-abiding citizen, he maintained his cruel streak behind closed doors. In 2014, director F. Gary Gray began production on the feature film Straight Outta Compton, a biopic about the rise of N.W.A., a rap group that achieved prominence during Night's Reign. In fact, Death Row Records co-founder Dr. Dre had a conflict with N.W.A. in the mid-80s, which Knight resolved through his typical threats and violence. Knight himself was depicted in the movie, played by R. Marcos Taylor. Except the real Suge Knight didn't like his depiction in the film. For Knight, image was everything, and reputation was worth killing over. Beginning in August, Gray began receiving texts from 49-year-old Suge Knight, reading, I will see you in prison. You have kids just like me, so let's play hardball. And... I'm a blood criminal street gang member from the city of Compton. Time has arrived. Soon afterward, Gray called the police. Knight was arrested and appeared before a grand jury for indictment. When Gray was called to testify, however, his story had changed. When asked about the text messages, Gray claimed that he couldn't recall ever speaking with Suge Knight. Later, the lawyers asked about how Knight was depicted in Straight Outta Compton and Gray claimed that he couldn't even remember the plot of the film he directed. It was clear that Gray had been intimidated into silence. But without a cooperative witness, the courts couldn't take any action against Knight. Ultimately, Suge Knight once more escaped charges. But that wasn't the end of his violent conflict with F. Gary Gray, or of his frustrations with the Straight Outta Compton movie. On January 29, 2015, 49-year-old Suge Knight tried to strong-arm his way onto a closed set to confront Gray. Before he could disturb the shoot, security intervened. Record producer Terry Carter was working on set and saw the confrontation. Eager to avoid a scene that might create bad press, he offered to speak to Suge Knight man-to-man away from the production. Suge Knight agreed, and the two decided to reconvene at the nearby Tam's Burgers. Shortly thereafter, Knight and a bodyguard pulled into the restaurant's parking lot. Carter brought a bodyguard, too, Clee Bone Sloan, who was working security on set that day. While Knight remained inside his idling vehicle, Carter and Sloan approached the truck. Knight rolled down his window and argued with the men from inside. Without warning, Knight threw his truck into reverse and backed up. Sloan was standing so close, he was struck by the vehicle. He fell to the ground. But Knight wasn't done. He charged forward, knocking Carter down and running over both men. After he crushed both their bodies, he peeled out and drove away. Multiple witnesses saw the crime and called the police. It took only a matter of hours for police to access the security camera footage and learn that Suge Knight intentionally ran the two men over. Eleven hours after the deadly collision, Suge Knight turned himself in. 
Knight faced murder and attempted murder charges when his trial began in September 2018. Although he'd been in and out of courtrooms for much of his music career, the stakes were particularly high this time for 53-year-old Knight. California was a three-strike state, and he had already been convicted twice before for pistol-whipping rappers in 1992 and for parole violations in 1996. That meant that if he were convicted, the maximum sentence would be significantly longer than it would be for a first or second offense. Knight could easily spend the rest of his life behind bars. Worst of all, prosecuting attorneys played security footage of Carter's death during the trial. That meant it would be impossible for Knight to claim he hadn't driven his car over Carter or that the incident had been an accident. Nevertheless, Knight maintained his innocence. When he took the stand, he laid out his side of the story. He explained that Carter was accompanied by a massive entourage who were standing just out of frame on the video footage. Knight testified that Carter's entourage threatened him with loaded guns. He claimed that he was terrified of being shot and needed to make a speedy getaway. He'd only run over Carter and Sloan because he saw no other path of escape. If Knight's claims of self-defense were true, he had no concrete evidence to back them up. The security camera footage from Tam's Burgers showed no indication that any armed men were present besides Suge Knight and his bodyguard. And Knight was savvy enough to know that the jury were unlikely to buy his testimony. So in late September 2018, he accepted a plea deal. In exchange for a no-contest plea to voluntary manslaughter, the state would drop their murder charge. In total, his sentence for manslaughter and assault with a deadly weapon was 28 years. As of 2019, Suge Knight is currently in prison with 27 years remaining on his sentence. He will be eligible for parole in October 2037, when he's 72 years old. As a child, Suge Knight learned that any hint of weakness was deadly. Instead, he survived by making himself the baddest, toughest, scariest man in Compton. By carrying that brutal mentality into adulthood, Knight made the rap industry exactly the kind of dangerous, deadly environment that so shaped and scarred his youth. And by perpetuating his violent ideals, he ensured that others, from Tupac Shakur to Terry Carter, paid the ultimate price for his brutality. Without his violent criminality, Suge Knight may never have achieved the level of fame and notoriety that he did with Death Row Records. He certainly never would have earned his reputation as an authentic gangster. But perhaps Suge Knight may have taken the opportunity to shape an industry and provide talented rappers with an alternative to intimidation, beatings, prison sentences, and death threats. Instead, Suge Knight allowed his dark side to consume him, and many of his closest friends and artists were dragged down as well. Thanks for listening to The Dark Side Of. Next week, we'll be back to explore the dark side of Sid Barrett. 
You can find all episodes of The Dark Side Of and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all your favorite ParCast originals, like The Dark Side Of, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream The Dark Side Of on Spotify, just open the app and type The Dark Side Of in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. The Dark Side Of was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Liebeskind, and Maggie Admire. This episode was written by Angela Jorgensen and stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner.